Hello and welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast. I'm Jonathan Grace and I'm joined today by Sports Car 365 reporter Davey Ovama. Davey, how was your week? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Very busy weekend with European Le Mans Series and the DTM on the same weekend, which is always an interesting combination of, of championships, but uh, the racing was very entertaining and yeah, looking forward to sort of uh, going through it all and uh, also look forward to one of the best events of, uh, of the year coming up soon. Absolutely, and we'll recap it all for you today in this week's episode. As we said, we'll recap the racing action, we'll bring you the news of the week, answer some listener questions, and give you a preview of what's to come in the world of sports car racing. All that and more on this week's episode of Double Stint. Well, Davey, we had European Le Mans Series action at Spa, and it was an excellent race towards the end of the season, uh, and an excellent showing for the number 22 United Autosports car. Tom Gamble, Duncan Tappy, and Phil Hansen taking victory, uh, nearly a 24-second gap over the number 43 car. We also saw an excellent performance from the Prema car, who's leading the championship, nearly wrapped it up, but finished third. They'll have to do it in Portimao, and a wonderful pro-am battle right at the closing stages of the race. Yeah, there were so many cars that I think realistically could have won that race. Um, very good run from from Gamble, Tappy, and, and and Phil Hansen. So I was very impressed with Tappy in the opening stint, and and ultimately they were in sort of a prime position when the uh, cool racing Orica, the car that started from pole, had an amazing first opening sort of stint with Nicholas Cruton behind the wheel, and then Nico Lapierre. You didn't expect him to make any sort of major mistakes but he did when he locked up at La Source and went all the way sort of onto the runoff and then off the track so and then at that point uh, United was second with Phil Hansen in the car took the lead and basically controlled it from there like I said had Premier finished second that would have been the championship done and dusted but they have to wait a little bit longer but it's almost a foregone conclusion now with the lead they have over the Panis racing guys who finished off the podium in this one as we said, an excellent showing for LMP2. That class always delivers. It was a great show in LMP3 as well. The number 13 inter-Europol competition car took victory there. They take the championship lead as well in their third consecutive class win, a dominant one. 41 seconds was the gap to second place. They were helped out by one of their championship rivals, though, being knocked out of contention early. Yeah, that team has just been on an absolute charge, you know, winning three races in a row. Um Usually, it's always Charles Cruz who starts that car, and it's sort of a pattern where usually within like the first 10 to 15 minutes, either Cruz is in the lead or very, very close to it. Um, and that was the same here. I think, um, yeah, just a very good run from these guys. They've been on a roll, uh, but they were aided in the fact that they could take the championship lead because the 17 car retired very early on when Maurice Smith, who is one of the bronzes in that car, he had contact at La Source with one of the RLLM Sport Ligiers. And that basically destroyed bodyworks, rear suspension, tires. The wheel was pretty much completely facing the wrong way. Like if you, there was a, at one point there was a shot with the car crawling towards Blanchimont and the, the face of the wheel was facing the camera and the car was going away from the camera. So just to give you an idea of how completely wrecked that car was. So yeah, they retired and you know, with their biggest championship competition out of the race, that did allow them to ultimately take the championship lead with another very, very strong win. These guys should really be able to lock this up at, um, at Portimao with the run that, that they've been on. 
In LMGTE, it was the number 57 Kessel Racing Ferrari, 488 GT3 Evo of Conrad Grunwald, Frederick Schandorf, and Mikhail Jensen, who took victory despite a huge dramatic spin earlier where they nearly took out the second place finisher, the number 83 Iron Dames Ferrari, a dramatic and huge spin up Radion where the car changed directions. Could have been a scary moment, but luckily everybody came out unscathed. Yeah, that was pretty terrifying actually to watch. Um, yeah, it was... Conrad Grunewald, who people may know from the Fan Attack GT World Challenge America, powered by AWS, that's where he sort of usually races. Yeah, he just, it was all on his own. There was no contact or anything. He just up through Radion and the car, the back end sort of stepped out on him and he spun all the way onto the runoff. And I think it was the Iron Edge I think that was trying to avoid and maybe it, it was expecting it not to slide out as far as it did because you'd saw from the onboard that Grunewald spun and then yeah they were just basically face to face and it was a very very close one like i said had that been a front-end impact i think that would have been a very very bad one for both drivers but um very glad to see that just that just ended with a bit of hurt pride maybe some stained underwear and a flat spotted set of slick tires also in action this week, we saw DTM at the Red Bull Ring for a pair of rounds where race one saw an absolutely dominant performance from Nick Cassidy in the number 37 Alpha Tauri AF Corsa Ferrari. His second win in DTM, he controlled the race from start to finish. Yeah, he's been on a roll. I'm, I've been super impressed with him of late. It's, it's worth noting that Nick Cassidy has very little GT3 racing experience. Um, obviously, sort of built up his reputation in japan super gt champion um then formula e where he's been doing very well but he's not that experienced in gt racing so it took him a little while i think to get up to speed but especially over the last couple of races um we've really started to sort of see a, a very quick side of his um and i think that was on full display here in spielberg i'm not sure which win was more impressive because the one at spa a couple of weeks ago and he had to really fight for it but like i said this was just dominance from from start to finish um it's a shame that he missed a couple of races because of formula e clashes because otherwise i think he could have been a championship contender he's only one of the i think three drivers now that have won more than one race alongside uh thomas prining spoiler and uh, sheldon van der linde Another impressive drive was from Thomas Priney, who had to carve his way through the field in the number 24 Coos Team Bernard Porsche 911 GT3R. Again, his second win in the DTM, a very well-managed and hard-earned victory. Yeah, I think that was probably even more impressive. You know, Cassidy start from pole controlling. This was a charge-up from somewhere in the midfield, and it, it should be noted that it was absolutely bucketing it down with rain during the second race and, and Priding basically said after the race, yeah, in the first couple of laps of like seventh, eighth, I couldn't see because of the spray. And then he said, well, once I sort of cleared up and actually I could actually see where I was going, I started to pick the pace up, fought his way forward, really impressed with a pass he did on Marrow Angle into turn nine, which if anybody knows the Red Bull ring, isn't really a, a place where you usually over, overtake somebody because it's that super bust of right hand little kink before you go down into the final quarter but he made it stick somehow through there while it was still wet and then took off um over the last couple of races he's just been a consistent presence in sort of the battle for wins and podiums absolutely and that's part of what's made dtm so exciting in this season in particular is the fact that it's not straightforward i mean look at vanderlinder's race he didn't score points in either outing the, the overall championship points have closed up significantly. Race one certainly wasn't straightforward for Bordelotti. He had that slow pit stop. So uh, it, really, anything could happen here. 
Speaking of championships, let's turn stateside for Fanatec GT World Challenge America, powered by AWS at Sebring, where Andrea Caldarelli took his second straight GT World Challenge America, powered by AWS championship, swept the weekend, and KPAX Lamborghini took the Pro Class Teams championship as well. Also on track, we saw Fanatec G2 World Challenge Asia, powered by AWS at Okayama. ADAC GT Masters was in action as well, and International GT Open took on Monza. As always, you can read all about it on sportscar365.com in our weekly racing roundup. Davey, let's end into talking about some of the news of the week, and we've got some GTP lineup news for you on a couple of different fronts. Let's start with Cadillac. We know now that Alexander Sims and Pipo Durrani will team up at Action Express, and it'll be Sebastian Bourdais and Ranger van der Zanda at Chip Ganassi Racing. Partially surprising and partially not. I mean, I think Bourdais, van der Zanda, Durrani were always going to be in there, but I think the most interesting part of that was who is going to be alongside Durrani at Action Express, because, you know, they've sort of rotated through a few drivers uh, through the course of this year um, but ultimately Alexander Sims I think is a pretty well deserving and, and very good choice for them uh, had an existing relationship with with GM as we knew because of his time with, with Corvette Racing in, in GTE um, so yeah very curious to see how he gets on because he's not a prototype racer per se he's been in GTs and he's done some Formula E as well but not a guy who has an overwhelming amount of prototype experience. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how he's going to get on here. Absolutely. And that's an interesting talking point, too. And something we'll bring up in our next storyline as well is the lack of prototype experience with some of these guys that are being brought up. We're seeing a couple of different manufacturers have to deal with this BMW, spoiler alert, a Ferrari down the line. But Cadillac now in this camp as well, having to pull up guys from the GT ranks to to race in a high downforce prototype. And, you know, some of these guys have open wheel formula experience. Some of them don't have as much. But either way, it's a unique challenge for the beginning of the golden era. Yeah, let's not forget they're not the only ones. Um, Porsche as well. I think if you look at Porsche's roster, you know, Jaminet, Campbell, Esther, Christensen, Vanthal, all GT races. Um, and we had a question about this, I think, in an episode a couple of, what, probably months ago by now. Um and and I remember I asked Michael Christensen about this, and he says, "Yeah, it's not really an LP one anymore, so we'll be able to sort of make that transition uh, slightly easier." So yeah, I mean, these guys obviously they're not being picked out of a hat. You know, you, you're going to want to think that these these decisions are being made with um, a fair amount of due diligence. So I don't think it's going to be too much of a, of a problem, although there might be a little bit of an adapting period as to uh, your style of racing instead of being the one that was looking in the mirrors because you're a gt driver yeah you're now the ones that have to make your way past the gts so that might be a little bit of a, a transition period there but otherwise they're all phenomenally talented racing drivers so i shouldn't really see much of a problem there well, in a way, it's it's an interesting point, Davey, because as former GT drivers, they may actually have a better understanding of how to manage traffic because they've been in that GT seat before and may end up helping them in the prototypes. That's also a very good point. I mean, you know what a GT driver sees and anticipates when there is a prototype coming up behind them. So they might be able to sort of also parlay that particular bit of experience to guys who are prototype guys, like uh, maybe... You know, Pippo or, or or Bordet, although they're also, you know, Bordet and Van der Zandervoort are race GT. So there is a mix there, I suppose, is the right answer to it. 
Either way, a massively talented lineup at Cadillac and an equally talented one at BMW, who has also announced their 2023 GTP lineup and officially unveiled the factory livery for the M Hybrid V8. It'll be Nick Yellowly and Connor Filippi in the number 24 car, and in the number 25, Philip Eng and Augusto Farfis. And Colton Herta was also announced to be driving at some of the endurance races for BMW. It's been a turbulent time for Colton Herta, but glad to see he's still part of this program. As we know, he's not new to BMW. Um, uh, in IMSA uh, I think he's won the Rolex 24 right Daytona in the GT ranks if I'm not very much mistaken but yeah just hinting back to what we said earlier um, the Felipe Yellowly Farfus Eng all GT races although it should be said I know that Nick Yellowly has driven Formula 1 cars I think he's been involved as a test and reserve driver over at well, he's now Aston Martin so former racing point and Farfus and in, Eng in obviously um, racing a class 1 DTM era, well, not Farfus, but sort of the more high down 4C um, DTM cars that we had um, maybe three, four, five, six years ago. So I think that's also something that they can carry over into this style of prototypes. You, They know what to do with a really high downforce race car. They certainly do. And I actually asked Nick Yellowly and Augusto Farfus both about this at the BMW event. And Nick Yellowly said, yeah, he said it's very helpful for him because he's been through these corners as fast as these cars are capable of. And he's driven in a straight line as fast as they're capable of driving in a straight line. And he says for him, it's just a matter of getting used to the, the little quirks in the car and getting used to the tracks. After that, it should just be five or six laps and he should be up to speed. And Farfus, who had a junior formula background as well, echoed that sentiment as well, saying, yeah, he understands how to drive with downforce he's it for him too it's it's not that big of an adjustment and farfus has been in the bmw camp uh, a long time he's driven and adjusted to a lot of new cars with various downforce levels and he's someone that that should adjust very quickly and obviously you mentioned yellow lee's formula one connection he shouldn't have too much trouble with it either yeah and i mean you were there you were at the unveiling so um i think you were uh, one of the very first people to really get a close-up look at what's now pretty much the definitive version of, of this car. So, yeah, w- what was your sort of impression of it? Because I like the livery. I like how it has that little sort of a hidden M logo on the tail fin with this little camouflage type stuff. So, yeah, that all looks pretty good to me. But what was your impression of it? It's spectacular, honestly. I, I think it's really cool to see this bold of a design on uh, on a GTP car. Um, I actually got to sit down with the chief designer on the car, Mike Scully, who, you know, stay tuned to Sports Car 365 because we may or may not have a paddock voices with him upcoming. Um, but he kind of walked me through some of the design choices they made. They wanted the huge kidney grills up front, but they've actually made it very functional too. So it's not one of those things where it's, you know, form taking the place of function. It actually does work. It, it just, it looks unmistakably BMW, I think, which is really cool. They even have the kind of signature M mirrors with the little winglets on top uh, just to cap it all off. And as you said, the, the kind of the deconstructed M on the, the livery as well, when you look at it, the M lines up and as it goes by, the M kind of changes into some abstract pattern, but it's a really, really cool design. Uh, I'm very excited to see how it looks at night, especially because the whole kidney grill lights up. I know it's always a challenge watching endurance racing at nighttime because it's kind of just lens flares and a bunch of noise, at least on the TV feed. But for the BMW, the unmistakable taillights, the unmistakable headlights for the kidney grills, you should be able to pick it out pretty easily. Doesn't matter if it's day or night, you can't miss that car. It's, oh, yeah. it's <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 very much a BMW. Yeah, it, it was great to see. It was a great event. Uh great to talk to everybody about it too. The other interesting thing too, and there's a there's a story about this on Sports Car 365, but a lot of the drivers feel that this car is kind of 
right out of the box. And, and that's kind of helped them close the development time gap to Porsche a little bit. Obviously, Porsche has a huge head start testing-wise, but both Yellowly and Farfa saying, yeah, the car feels just about in the window right away. And that's massively important because this means they can focus on setup more than just dealing with mechanical gremlins and things like that. And on top of that, the car's been mostly reliable. That's that's good to know because um, yeah, we'll wrap this up in a little bit. But yeah, I, I went to Munich um, earlier this year where th- at that point, I think they would, hadn't even fitted the engines to the car yet. And they went, yeah, well, the reliability is is it's promising, but we still have work to do. So apparently that work's been done. Yeah, absolutely. It's exciting to see uh, as they move into their U.S. testing program, uh, good stuff to come, I'm sure, for BMW. Iron Lynx has its Monza class win reinstated after winning an appeal over their disqualification at the Italian circuit. They've been awarded the 25 points for the class win and moved up to second in the championship standings. They now sit just behind the number 77 Proton crew, who was initially handed that win in Monza. Yeah, that sort of came out of nowhere. I didn't really see that coming, to be completely honest with you. Um, yeah, that was um, that went all the way back to uh, July, so a couple of months ago now, where um, it crossed the line first, but I think it ran out of fuel um, after a pretty charging stint from Davide Rigon, and then the sister car pushed it to Park Ferme. Um, now, I believe you're not allowed to sort of get yourself to Park Ferme unassisted, um, but it's a little light on details, but yeah, they won the appeal. So, again, this is pure speculation from my end, but I think what they might have said is no person is allowed to push the car. There's nothing about another car pushing another car. But, again, I don't know if that's true, but that does seem like a sort of a logical way of thinking about that, to me at least. Yeah, it was an interesting one, but either way, it, it kind of does change some of the championship implications as well because not only were they awarded the points for the win, but as we said, their position in the championship standings was moved up as well. So this could kind of change things down the line as the championship winds down. Yeah, certainly. Um, as we know, just one race to go. So uh, a very important courtroom victory for Iron Links in that regard. Couldn't have come at a better time, really. No, it certainly was, and it certainly has. As always, you can read all about the headlines we've covered on today's show and more over on sportscar365.com. Well, Davey, let's dive into answering some listener questions. We had a pair of questions in the comments section from our previous episode from Sam L. Uh, The first one is about team orders. He asks, why are team orders so much more prevalent in the World Endurance Championship compared to IMSA, aside from uh, the Penske DPIs in 2020 and a few examples he cited in the GT ranks? There haven't been too many cases of team orders in IMSA, while in WEC, they seem like a yearly occurrence. Uh, I'm, I have to admit, I don't. Um, I th- can think of a couple of maybe reasons. It might be a little bit culture thing, uh, with IMSA being... A bit more, it always feels like a bit more of an old school championship to me as opposed to WEC, which is very much, you know, a world championship. I think also another reason is usually a team only run one car and um, you can only really do team orders if you have two cars, unless it is more um, something akin to what we saw in DTM at last year's season finale, where it came all the way up from the manufacturer level. but yeah, if you have two cars, which is more common usually in WEC, you know, two cars for Toyota in the hypercar class, which I think Toyota is probably the best example of a, a team that uses team orders very frequently. Um, yeah, if you have one car, you can't do team orders with one car. That's That seems like a pretty logical thing to me, at least. Yeah, it, it's a good point. If, if there's uh, 
not the personnel. You can't really make it happen. But uh, it's an interesting point, too, on the culture thing as well. IMSA may just kind of discourage it from a culture standpoint, even if there's nothing explicit written into the rule book. Again, that's I don't want to say that's as a fact. I don't really know enough yet about the culture of IMSA. It just seems something that is sort of feels to me like that way from what I do know about the championship. The next question from Sam L. is one that's fairly timely for the upcoming Motul Petit Le Mans. He said, with a possibility of a tropical system in the Gulf of Mexico next weekend, how can the track prepare for these impacts? And if there is no storm, do you know what tracks have done to improve their ability to run races in the rain? Specifically, do we have any idea if Road Atlanta has made any track changes since the last wet race in 2015 where cars got stuck in the mud and rivers flowed across the track? Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting one. Uh, like you said, twenty fifteen immediately comes to mind. I again, I also don't know. This is probably one of those questions where John the Geese might be a little better, more better qualified to answer this than I am. But um, you'd imagine there would have made changes. Uh, it's usually always the cycle and racing where something goes wrong. How can we make sure that it doesn't happen again? And then do that thing. That's always the sort of always the way racing works. So I'd imagine there would have been changes. How can you prepare? Well, one, keep the safety cars fueled up, I guess, um, because uh, if it is going to rain as much as it will be, event, I can't not see a safety car come out for weather at some point. You make sure the drainage, all the drainage is working correct, um, and and stuff like that. And and I think that's yeah. That's pretty much it, I think. I'm not really much of an expert on that particular front. Well, racing in the rain usually does bring out a safety car. Racing in a hurricane almost definitely will. Uh, But again, I'll have to report back after the weekend and see just what happened. But to your point about the improvements, you look at circuits like VIR. It seems like just about every single year there's new improvements to either the fan facilities, the media facilities, something like that. And the the racetracks at this level all kind of operate, as you said, under that same ideology of constant improvement, constant evolution. Uh, if it's broken, we improve it and move forward. Uh, and you got to assume Road Atlanta is, is no different. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting weekend, that's for sure. Our next question comes from Brian Starr on Twitter with the hashtag AskDoubleStint. He asks, with the new LMDH cars coming to IMSA next season, what will happen to the old DPI cars? Will teams or drivers keep them for collections or get rid of them? And this is an interesting one because they could certainly uh, make their way into private collections. They could also be sold off to private collectors or third parties who want a DPI car in their collection. And at the same time, this helps fundraise for uh, the teams that have run them. But either way, they can't be used on track next year. Well, I'm not in current IMSA. I mean, there's always historic racing. Um, I think we've seen a couple of the older generation Daytona prototypes end up in, in some historic championships here and there. So I think that's probably option one. You said sold off to private collections is probably option two. Option three, museum pieces. Probably. There are a couple of cars in there that are very significant. You know, Rolex 24 winners or championship winners, Sebring winners. So... I think it's either one of those streets, uh, going to historic racing, going to private collections, or going to the museum. I think that's probably the, the three most likely options. Absolutely. Uh, you know, these uh, these cars have gone through the wars, a lot of them. And as you said, there's there's some pretty significant ones in there as well. Uh, you, you got to imagine that they would look nice in a collection, but don't think this is the last time you'll ever see them on track. As you said, I'm sure they'll be run in exhibition laps. I'm sure one or two will make their way to Goodwood at some point and, and find their way into a historic race or two. Well, that will probably be 30, 40 years down the line. But. <laughs> Fair enough. 
As always, we always appreciate you writing in your questions, and we love answering them on the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on Double Stint, be sure to post it in the comment section below this episode, or take to Twitter and post your question there using the hashtag AskDoubleStint, and we'll put our heads together to answer your question in an upcoming episode. Before we let you go, let's give you a preview of what's coming up. We already mentioned it, but the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship will make its way to Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta for Motul Petit Le Mans, the season finale where all but one championship is to be decided. Uh, the entry list has come out. and We've seen some changes. Cooper McNeil will not take part. We're not sure why yet. There hasn't been much clarification on that, but either way, his seat for the number 79 WeatherTech Racing Mercedes will now run in the GTD Pro class with an all-factory lineup of uh, Maxi Goats, Maxi Pook, and Mikel Grenier. This will be an interesting one to watch as well with that lineup. Lusta Pau will join Chitilar Racing in place of Antonio Fuoco, who has a conflict. Tapao will be making his U.S. racing debut. He's the reigning GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS Sprint Cup champion from this season. Yeah, a rising star, if ever there was one. Um, been super impressive in, in the Ferraris and in, in, like you said, the, the Sprint Cup. Well, I think he won two races. Um, yeah, just a very, very good rising star driver so i'm very curious to see how he's gonna get on i'd imagine he's gonna do pretty well because he knows the ferrari almost like the back of his hand after a pretty successful season in in, in spring cup in europe absolutely and as always the entry list for motul petit le mans is kind of a who's who of sports car racing outside of the 24 hours itself uh, either of daytona or le mans so should be an interesting one with plenty of talent on the track a couple other interesting talking points we mentioned uh the championships all up for grabs in dpi between the two acuras uh and in the lmp2 ranks it's the number 52 pr1 matthias and motorsport who leads the championship it's core autosport who leads the lmp3 championship uh, but at least for the prototype classes, we've got three championships up for grabs. Yeah, it's it's going to be a very interesting one. I love it when championships go right down the line, down to the line, because it brings this enormous drama. Uh, I can remember last year's DPI finale, I think, went down to a last minute absolute lunge from one of the drivers to sort of clinch the championship. I'm hoping that that's going to happen again, um, even though it's very much still a two on two duel. Uh, or a one-on-one duel, excuse me. Um, yeah, I can't wait. It's gonna be it's gonna be mega. Petit Le Mans is always such a wild race where you never know what's gonna happen until the checkered flag actually uh, actually comes out. So yeah, it should be good. Well, we could be racing in a hurricane, so that should make it interesting as well. <laughs> yeah, just as if it wasn't dra- dramatic enough already. <laughs> <laughs> Imps has really cooked up something special here on the weather front. In GTD Pro, FAF Motorsport only needs to take the green flag at Motul Petit Le Mans to clinch the GTD Pro title. And in GTD, it's the number 27 Harder Racing Aston Martin who holds the current points lead, and they're looking to wrap things up in Atlanta. Yeah, I just want to point you in the, in the direction of a pretty great story by John the Geeks on that car. Uh, how that sort of came into the championship be with a huge gamble in terms of fuel by Maxi Martin at the last race uh, at VIR. So, yeah. Do read that because it's a very good story and sort of tells the tale of how this car came into the position where it is now. It's a great read, and yeah, we highly recommend you check it out. The other big talking point is this is the final race for the DPI era, uh, and and I'm sure we'll reminisce and, and reflect on our next Doublestone episode, but what a great racing era it's been for, for DPI. We know we haven't had the manufacturer involvement that we may have hoped, and that's going to change with the GTP era and, and hypercar over in WEC, but uh, it, it's produced some fantastic racing with some great names. It certainly will will miss the DPI cars. In my opinion, it is, it's been for the last couple of years, the 
best prototype class anywhere in the world. Um, that's partially because of I think the the sort of a level of, of talent in terms of drivers that we've seen, sort of the way the cars have been balanced out has always been um fairly successful in terms of balance of performance. Um yeah. It's weird because on the one hand you're gonna say I'm gonna miss them, but on the other hand, they're not really going away, even though they slightly are, but they also aren't. They're just gonna probably get better, arguably. Yeah, this is interesting because Sebastian Bourdais actually kind of talked about this, I think, to John DeGeese a couple months ago during Cadillac's testing program, and he said the new GTP car actually doesn't feel all that dissimilar to the current DPI car, and so it wasn't as much of an adjustment for him as he thought it might have otherwise been. So, as you said, maybe more of an evolution. Yeah, I guess that's the way it would say because it's should be, of course, worth noting that what we now have in LMDH or GTP and IMSA was sort of, I guess it sort of came from from DPI. It took a lot of inspiration from from the DPI formula. So in that way, it is an evolution almost. It certainly is. One great era making way for another one. We will also see Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS Endurance Cup, take on Barcelona for the final round of their season, and Super GT will be at Autopolis. That's it for us this week on the podcast. If you have the time, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps out the show. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you're tuning in from. For Davey Ovalma, I'm Jonathan Grace. We'll see you right back here next week for another edition of Double Stint.